This episode of Haunted Places contains mentions of suicide and is set in Aokigahara Jukai, sometimes referred to as Japan's Suicide Forest. This name and its meaning has been called Japan's Greatest Shame. This episode was written by a mental health professional and a person who has experienced suicidal ideation themselves. Please use your best judgment to decide if this is an appropriate episode for you to listen to. If you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts or the impulse to self-harm, please seek help. Whether it's a therapist, a loved one, or your country's suicide hotline, do not be ashamed. Guards and volunteers walk Aokigahara every day, looking to listen and heal. You don't need to brave these dark woods alone. Now, let's start our story. When Hideo comes back from break, Takashi tells him they found another body. The station is right next to Aokigahara, and this is a far too common routine for them. It hasn't gotten easier. As always, they play rock, paper, scissors to determine who's going to spend the night with the deceased. Paper covers rock. Hideo has lost. Hideo approaches the room slowly. He has a duty now, but he's not looking forward to it. The man's body lies on a cot, waiting for the family in the morning. The corpses started to release gases. The room reeks of death. Hideo sits down, averting his eyes, trying to give the man some privacy, wishing he could somehow lessen the defilement the poor man has suffered. A soft sigh leaves the corpse's lips. Hideo tenses. He knows it's just an involuntary muscle movement, a sign of a formerly living thing becoming permanently still. But he can't help feeling that he's not alone. The hours pass slowly. The corpse remains silent and still, waiting to be taken to his family. Hideo's presence keeps the Raycon, the soul, from becoming a Yurei, a restless spirit. It'll walk the dormitories if left alone. That's what Takashi told him when he began serving in this prefecture. It had seemed like an old wives' tale for an agnostic city boy like Hideo, but the earnest way Takashi had looked at him as he said it always gave him pause. He just started to doze in his seat, lulled by the absence of sound. When the clock strikes two, the hour of ghosts. Hideo jumps up and scans the corpse. It's still there. Still eyes. Bloated face. He's tempted to leave the room, but Takashi's fears have become his own. He tries to radio for help. Something places its hand on the doorknob. Hideo watches as the handle turns slowly. It's just another guard, he tells himself. Takashi telling him that Seto had a nightmare again. It's not a guard that greets him. A bloated corpse shuffles forward on stiff legs. A savage necklace of bruising around its neck. Its eyes are vacant, but Hideo still feels the burn of a gaze in the room. 
The cadaver lurches forward and grabs him, breath putrid, jaws open in a permanent scream at the injustice, the dishonor, the pain of it all. All at once, Hideo realizes what has happened. They didn't find the other body in time. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Aokigahara Jukai, or the Sea of Trees, the second most popular suicide spot in the world. To this day, it's haunted. If you can't get enough haunted places, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on your favorite podcast directory, as well as on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and on Twitter, at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, wherever you're listening. 1,200 years ago, Mount Fuji erupted for 10 days, the lava flowed down the mountain's northwestern side and divided the great Sanaumi Lake in half. In time, from this wasteland of fire and smoke, trees began to grow. The igneous rock soon played host to over 3,000 acres of dense green forest. It isn't known when the forest known as Ayokigahara became associated with death. Japanese spiritualism is profoundly complicated, with spirits and yokai, mysterious creatures that can work good or evil in the world, believed to be dwelling in both cities and the most remote of places. What we do know is that when you walk into Aokigahara, it quickly grows dark. Though the forest is young in geological and botanical terms, it is dense quickly blocking the light from the moss and root-covered forest floor. Tigers often bring tape with them. Starting at the entrance to the trail, they hang colorful ribbons on trees in order to find their way back. The lava absorbs sound, making one feel submerged and alone, even in daylight. It's this isolation that gives the forest its other name, Jakai, the Sea of Trees. Is it any wonder that people say they hear voices in the woods? Some say that a novel published in the 1960s by acclaimed writer Seicho Matsumoto established Aokigahara's status as a locus for pain and sorrow. But the locals say that the yurei, or ghosts, took up residence long ago, when honor and duty converged to force families to make an awful choice. The Tenpo famine was never-ending. For two long years, they'd been starving. The rumbling of empty stomachs was a common sound at the dinner table, as the whole family shared food as best they could. There were eight of them. The parents and maternal set of grandparents took as little as they could to ensure that the four children got more than their fair share. But even those portions were getting smaller. They'd endured the floods, but the cold had done the crops in. 
After the children had gone to bed, it was time for the adults to talk. Shoji, the patriarch, spoke first. His words were barely above a whisper. He'd lived a long life, a good life. At 63, he had seen his share of natural disasters and invading foreigners. It was a life worth living, and, he argued, it was time for his life to come to a close. Plenty of other villagers had left their eldest on mountains and hills to wait for death. There was an honor in it. It was a noble action, sacrificing an old life to keep the younger ones fed. His son, Tatsuzo, did not share his sentiments. Shoji and Tatsuzo worked alongside each other and provided the family with the majority of their food. They couldn't afford to lose him. They argued through the night, their tempers fueled by the hunger in their stomachs. In the morning, Atsuko, Tatsuzo's mother, stood next to the paper doors. Tatsuzo asked her if she was certain. She nodded her head. Shoji placed a tender kiss on his wife's cheek. A goodbye. Etsuko and Tatsuzo walked away from the village and toward the dense forest. Tatsuzo's shoulders sagged with the weight of his responsibility. There was honor in this type of death, but it was not an enviable position to be in. Etsuko had a slight smile on her thin lips as she walked with her son. The promise of food for her beloved grandchildren was enough for her to meet death. She could make this trade for them, her life for little hope, until this horrible famine was over. A thick blanket of fog swallowed the trees as they moved toward the mountain. They had trouble seeing above them, but the ground was clear. Wordlessly, Atsuko paused, bending down to the forest floor. Tatsuzo stopped, watching her with a silent sadness. She was gathering sticks. Tatsuzo was confused, half-dazed from the weight of his heart, the closeness of the forest and the fog. She didn't look up at him, focused on her work. He didn't know what to say. She finally finished, and they began walking again. As they moved further into the green dark, she began to break the sticks in half and threw them on the ground. So you may find your way home, she reassured Tatsuzo. His smile did not reach his eyes, but he bowed his head in a gesture of thanks. The sticks formed a haphazard path as the two ventured further and further through the dense crush of twisted trees. The silence stretched between them as they both readied themselves for what was to come. As they approached the base of the sacred Mount Fuji, Tatsuzo lifted Atsuko onto his back. His stomach growled in protest as he used his last reserves of energy to keep Atsuko firmly seated on top of his shoulders. Her wrinkled hands clung to his chest tightly. It was the only hint for him that she wasn't quite as ready as she appeared. As they reached the top of the mountain, he lowered her back down. His back ached and his knees shook, but he tried to stand tall for her. She placed a comforting hand on his cheek. He bent his head out of respect. Go, she whispered. 
he bowed long and deep, only turning away when the terrain demanded it. Etsuko watched as her son's shape retreated farther and farther away. When he was but a tiny speck nearing the forest once more, she decided to sit down. The hunger pangs came first. She'd been so focused on the journey this morning, she hadn't been able to feel her stomach yet. Now it roared as though it were a tiger trying to break free from the confines of her skin. The thirst came next. Her mouth lost its moisture slowly. Each swallow felt thicker as the scant saliva tried to coat her throat. She licked her cracked lips to bring some moisture back to them. It wasn't enough. Her tongue yearned for water, trying to pull droplets from the air. But there was no comfort. She spent the night under the stars, waiting for death to take her. Her body throbbed with pain. How much suffering must she endure? A blinding headache stole her vision from her as she awoke. She could no longer tell if it was day or night. Amidst the silence, any noise jumped out at her. She wanted company or entertainment, something that would make the wait easier. The wind blew, filling her mind with chilling scenarios. Perhaps Tatsuzo had gotten lost and was now suffering the same fate. Had the trail been enough? The family would only have one laborer to call on. The children could be struck with an illness that their malnourished bodies wouldn't be able to fight. Her daughter-in-law would be exhausted and grow sick too. Her family would die and it was all her fault. No, it was too much to bear. In a fit of panic, Atsuko raised her creaking body and ran down the path. Her lungs burned and her stomach ached. Her heart was pounding. She forgot about the broken sticks and tripped. Her body flew through the air. Exhausted arthritic fingers clung to the edge of a ridge. She didn't want to die. She wasn't ready to make this sacrifice. There was more for her to do to ensure her family's safety. But the mountain was empty. No one would come. And then, the whispers started. They were soft at first, a tickle against her ear. Over the wind, she could hear the merest suggestion, Come down to us. The spirits had never seen fit to call to her before. They grew louder. You have failed. Let go. Their voices surged like a loud yell. Fall. But Atsuko clung desperately as the wind swelled and swirled around her. She fought with everything she had. Join us, the voices called. For minutes on end, a roaring of their words reverberated in her ears. Your pain nourishes us. Your sorrow gives us strength. We are inside and around you. We are the air you breathe and the wind that burns on the mountaintop. We are the scorching sun and the blood moon. 
We are infinite, and you are mortal. We will wait, and you will die. Etsuko's fingers dug harder into the side of the cliff, but a gust of wind took her by surprise, slamming her body into the mountain. With a scream, her grip loosened, and she fell. Her neck broke with a brittle crack as her body hit the forest floor. They had stolen her honorable death away and trapped her in the in-between. The white snow had gone gray. The forest far below was a deathly white. She would not be able to return to her family during Oban. Now there was only the darkness, the cold, blinding light, and the wind. She released her own deafening scream. Somewhere, far away, Tetsuzo heard a whisper and stepped off the path. The practice of ubasute, or abandonment of a parent, appears in Japanese art as early as the 19th century. Although there may have been some real cases, many scholars believe it was simply folklore or a societal metaphor. In recent years, a combination of a growing elderly population and a severe economic crisis has created a new form of ubasute where adults drop their sick parents off at so-called senior citizen post boxes and never see them again. Our story will continue in a moment, right after the break. And now, let's continue the story. There are those that say the trees of Aokigahara have absorbed the tragic, restless spirits of the past that the forest itself calls to them in dreams. But there is more to Aokigahara than ghosts. Japanese legend has no shortage of dark shapes that wait among the trees. Banri regretted killing Katsuji, but his child was missing and Katsuji seemed the most likely suspect after everything he'd done. Banri had been in anguish for his son and wanted to hurt whoever had dared to take him. Katsuji had pled his innocence for hours as Banri tortured him. No matter what Banri did, cutting his skin, breaking his bones, Katsuji claimed he had nothing to do with it. It enraged Banri. He'd been so blinded by his own pain, he never stopped to consider that Katsuji had been telling the truth. When Banri was growing up, his grandfather told him a story about a samurai. The samurai was tasked with killing a criminal. If the criminal's last thoughts were of vengeance, he would become an onryo, a vengeful spirit, seeking the samurai's pain and ruin all his life. But the samurai was wise. He let the man bluster and threaten as much as he liked, then asked the man to give him proof of his ability to act from beyond the grave. The man agreed. Teeth gritted in defiance. As he raised his weapon, he instructed the criminal to use his onryo to bite a stone after his head had rolled from his shoulders. The man swore he would bite the stone. The samurai removed the man's head in one swift blow. It fell, 
slick with blood, and bounced once, twice, right onto the stone, its teeth firmly embedded. The samurai's retainers were terrified, but the samurai wiped his blade clean and sheathed it for safekeeping. He explained to his men that he switched the criminal's thoughts from revenge to biting the stone. The samurai and his men were safe for all the days of their lives. And so Bonri followed his example. He kept Katsuji without food or drink for hours. After endless sessions of torture, he offered Katsuji some water. As the man drank, thinking of nothing but his own thirst, Bonri cut off his head. The next day, his son came home to him. He cried tears of relief as he hugged the boy tightly to his chest. The police had found him and the man who had taken him. Katsuchi really had been innocent. Bonri had waited for the guilt to set in, but it didn't. Katsuji had been a good suspect. Bonri had seen that look in his eyes, that darkness. Perhaps Bonri had balanced the universe and it had rewarded him by bringing his son home. That night, he was haunted by visions of a forest. Dark spirits roamed freely. They clawed at his skin with great white hands. He woke, covered in sweat, with scratch marks up and down his arms. In the morning, two books were sitting by his place at the table. Confused, he asked what they were. His wife told him they were crime novels he had ordered, but he had no memory of this. Bonri cocked his head to look at the titles. Nami no Tou, Tower of Waves. Kuroi Jukai, The Black Sea of Trees. His son asked a question about his homework, and Bonri returned to his breakfast. There was something about the novels that piqued his attention. He'd always loved detective stories, but this was something different. It was as though Kuroi Jukai was speaking to him, asking him to read its contents. With such a strong tie between the book and himself, he'd expected something other than an unsettling story about a string of suicides. When he got to the ending, he dropped the book. Two lovers walked into a dense green forest and killed themselves. He knew this forest, the descriptions of the trees, the moss, the darkness. It was the woods at the seat of the sacred mountain, the forest in his dreams, Aoki Gahara. Although he tried to go through his normal routines, he couldn't shake the forest from his mind. The wind whispered its name to him. The forest seemed to appear in the windows of his train on his way to work. His friends were gripped by Kuroi Jukai and wanted to talk about the exciting ending. His boss suggested a hike to the ice caves near Aokigahara. The forest haunted him every hour of every day. He had escaped Katsuji's Onryo. There was no Onryo. He'd been silly to believe that in the first place. Yet the forest remained. He realized that despite his many, many dreams, he never went deeper into the woods. 
he began to recognize the same clearing, the gnarled roots that seemed to push out of the ground, urging their trees' canopies to block out the light. He was resolved then. Perhaps he could follow the tales of his childhood, find the glade, and lay whatever spirit was calling him to rest. He packed a bag and kissed his wife goodbye. He hugged his son once more, unsure if he would ever see either of them again. The bustling city fell away as Mount Fuji rose in the distance. The whispers of Aoki Gahara grew louder the closer he got. The trees seemed to sing to him. Sing. Or scream. He booked a room in a nearby inn, ignoring the girl at the desk brochures about ice caves and monks' sacred pilgrimages. He slept. But there were no peaceful dreams to soothe his anxious mind. Instead, he saw a creature with no face. It chased him through the woods. Icy fingers closed around his heart and squeezed. He woke with a start. As he approached the forest in the harsh light of day, he wondered if he was making the right decision. Everything appeared to be leading him here, but perhaps he could fight it a little longer. He tried to turn away and head back to his room, but his feet moved forward instead. He kept moving ahead. There was no one in sight, just him and a verdant wave of flora. It would have been peaceful, if not for the eerie stillness. He stepped into a land that didn't belong to the living. He knew that now. But something was compelling him to keep going. As the last vestiges of light were consumed, Bonri finally felt the pain in his legs. He'd been moving nonstop for hours. His throat burned from dehydration. His stomach whined for food. He needed to stop and rest. Just a small rest. The forest floor was soft, and the moss was cool and soothing. He closed his eyes and dreamed of the sea. Evil for evil. The words were whispered into his ear, jolting him awake. His eyes struggled to adjust to the dark. There was something at his feet. It wasn't a person, but in the dark it almost looked like one. A bulbous head sat on top of a lopsided neck, deathly white, with an almost moon-like glow. Its eyes seemed to roll out of its head below its midnight dark eyebrows. A white shroud loosely encircled its skeletal neck. Bones stuck out from the body at odd angles, but its legs joined and ended in a wisp. An impossibly large, gaping mouth smiled, revealing rows and rows of sharp, white teeth. Red eyes stared at Bonry with an intensity he had never seen. Bonry tried to scream, but his vocal cords were still. He tried to scoot away from the creature, but he couldn't move. Like prey before a snake, he was frozen by its savage stillness. 
sweat clung to his skin, like frost. This was the thing that had been calling to him for weeks. This was Katsuji's vengeance, personified. The creature opened its mouth wider, splitting its head in half. And then, to his horror, Banri realized it wasn't a shroud around the demon's neck. It was a bib. It lifted Banri's feet with clawed, chalky hands. This wasn't vengeance, not for Banri. His grandfather had told him about these. Jikininki, hungry ghosts, corpse eaters, the cowards, the selfish, cursed to consume the dead. With one large bite, it began to swallow Bonri's flesh and bones. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to haunted places. The Japanese government doesn't publicize the suicide statistics of Aoki Gahara anymore. Perhaps they hope to make a new history for the lush ecosystem the eruption of the sacred mountain left behind centuries ago. There are truly beautiful sights to be seen after walking past the warning signs along the trail. They're doing their very best to turn people who would harm themselves back toward help. There are ancient caves, natural wonders with spiritual significance. More than one Buddhist monk is said to have locked himself away in a cave here for ritual fasting, eventually becoming one with the sacred mountain. Mount Fuji itself is a site of massive spiritual power in Japanese tradition. If you don't practice Shinto or Buddhism, you might focus on the natural wonders that lie before you. You might not feel the power of this place, and you will surely regret it. When your friend Brian suggested a stroll into the Sea of Trees, you were apprehensive. Neither of you had ever been to Mount Fuji, and its legendary views were tempting. You read about the floor made of lava rocks and the different caves. It was a geological wonder, but it was also home to a darkness you knew you couldn't ever understand. You planned to walk quickly and quietly through these areas, like holding your breath as you passed a graveyard. The first thing you notice is the abandoned cars in the parking lot. The forest has begun to reclaim them. A pile of leaves, a punched one-way ticket to the area. No need to return. Now, you stand at the foot of one of the many winding trails, ready to enter. It's bright outside. There's a soft rustling of trees against the wind, and the errant call of a bird. Brian packed tape for the two of you to use, just in case you get lost. You hesitate to step forward, but he's already started down the trail, his backpack receding between the Japanese cypress and the five-needle pines. The silence takes you both by surprise. All the noise gets swallowed up by the volcanic rock beneath the soil, and you can't hear anything but your own breathing. The dense canopy above gives a sense of twilight, though it's only midday 
The green of the trees stands out amidst the dark bark in the ground. They're fresh and alive, but the stillness makes you feel like you're in a painting. It's easy to count the signs of warning alongside the path. They're spaced out at even intervals, and each contains its own plea in kanji and kana. Please consult the police before you decide to die, reads the sign closest to you. One further up ahead states, Your life is a precious gift. They're everywhere. Large wooden engravings. Smaller signs hanging off thin ropes that keep you and Brian from wandering through the more upsetting parts of the forest. The path becomes harder to discern. You tape a ring around a nearby cypress and gently begin tugging on the roll of blue painter's tape as you and Brian walk further into the lush green. There's a glimmer of white just off the path. Before you can stop him, Brian has left the trail, bringing the tape with him, hanging it on the trees. You take off after him, carefully. Trash is scattered on the path in front of you. Old shoes, children's toys, pieces of stray garbage. Some of them are covered in a smattering of green. A book in white and black decomposes on the forest floor. You know enough kanji to see that it's a manual of some kind. The words, to die, assault your vision. The last clear words on the wet pages. Brian says it's clearly the leavings of bad campers. You know camping isn't allowed here. You look behind you, hoping to see how far the two of you have come, but the trees blur together. Your head swims as you try to make sense of the tangled shapes that blend together in the limited light. It's impossible to say where you are, but you know that if you just go back to the path, you should be fine. You have the tape. The anguish of the scream stops you both in your tracks. You share a brief look before you both take off running toward the sound, not even knowing why. You fly over the thin ropes that are meant to keep you safe, dashing through the forest toward the sound. The blue tape falls to the ground as you try to yank it along the way, breaking with a deafening snap. You stop for a second to get your bearings. The scream was faint, but you know that you heard it. You stop to listen again. There's only silence quiet as a temple. You turn around, trying to figure out where you came from. What do you think? You say to the empty air next to you. Brian is gone. You scream his name loudly, hoping that he'll call back to you. You were both running in this direction, right? Or was it the opposite direction? You yell again, your vocal cords straining with the effort. It's like you're underwater. Another scream cuts through the silence. You aren't sure if it's the one that started you running or your friend calling out to you. It doesn't much matter at this point. You run as fast as you can toward the sound. You leap over a yellowing skull, an empty set of clothes, as you chase the sound farther and farther into the crowded forest. You hear nothing outside of the scream, 
and the crunch of your hiking boots. And then, the scream is gone. You remember the tape that you could have followed back through the path. Now, it's lost. And so are you. There's no sign of your friend. You survey your surroundings. There are photographs and notes nailed to the trunks of the trees. A small statue, nearly overtaken by the green. The old growth trees seem to lift themselves off the ground, crawling toward the sky. The perfect hiding place for another set of abandoned belongings. Roots entwine themselves together, forming a mossy carpet, almost like a coral reef. Nothing looks familiar. No new tracks or broken branches to suggest someone else had recently run through here. You're utterly alone. You try to pull your compass out, but your shaking hands sent it falling to the ground. You bend down to pick it up, studying the dial of the compass as it points toward the east. The forest is less than 14 square miles. If you keep walking straight, you'll eventually find a way out and get some help. As you start to head east, you notice the compass is now pointing south instead. Frustrated, you shove the faulty thing in your pocket and try to think of another solution. You scream Brian's name once more. No response. He always tried to be the hero. You glance toward the canopy of the trees, trying to figure out just how long you've been in here. Time moves slower in the silence, and the daylight is a fickle, flighty thing. It could have been minutes or hours as you stare into the dizzying mass of trees and try to figure out just what to do. Hopelessness weighs your body down as you pick a direction and keep moving. If you can just find those signs again, you'll be all right. The guidebook said that volunteers patrol the grounds. They'll find you. Eventually. Something passes by you, too fast for you to make out. Part of you worries that you're hallucinating, but with no other options, you change position again and head toward the blob of white that sailed past you. Perhaps it's the fleeing sun. The shape stays just out of your sightline, always at the periphery. You catch quick glimpses of it and turn to study. Each time you turn, it's already moved farther ahead. You fix your gaze to where you think it will appear, waiting for something to happen. Your patience is rewarded. Black spots on a cloud of white. A faint outline of something that used to be human. What is it now? You can't be sure. You hear the crunch of footsteps behind you and hesitate to turn around. If you stop staring at this thing in front of you, you know that it will disappear. But it's shifted focus to whatever is behind you, which gives you no choice but to look. As you spin around, you catch a flash of the white creature moving again. A Buddhist monk stands before you. His kind smile feels out of place in this cold and isolating space. 
He reaches out to shake your hand, wordless. The warmth of his skin against yours puts your mind at ease. The guide had said they wander the woods, hoping to console and save the hopeless. You want to protest that you aren't hopeless, just lost. But you get the feeling he already knows. He walks you through the forest. He keeps your pace steady, and you start to see the large signs again. You step back over the ropes and onto the safe trail once more. You head out of the forest as fast as your legs will carry you, not wanting to risk another strange encounter. When you get back to the forest entrance, there's still no sign of Brian. He can't have vanished into thin air. He must be waiting for you nearby. You turn to speak to the monk, but he's already retreated into the woods, off to help someone else. Your legs are sore from running, and you're more than a little disoriented. But you find your way to the police station near the trail entrance. You head inside and speak to the first person you can find. Your voice shakes slightly as you tell the man in staccato Japanese that your friend is missing. The woman at the desk looks at you skeptically. Did you say something wrong? You tell her one of the monks brought you back. You desperately hope you're using the right honorifics. She stares at you for a long moment and you feel a tremble go down your spine. There are no monks or guides in the forest today. Your knees give out and you fall to the floor. You don't know who walked you back to where you came from or why, but there is a gnawing in the pit of your stomach, an unease that spreads through your entire body. Brian is gone and he's not coming back. When Mount Fuji erupted in 864, nearly wiping out the population of what would later be called the Yamanashi Prefecture, the emperors quickly divined the cause. The Shinto priests had been derelict in their worship of Mount Fuji's deity, Asama no Akami. The region is now filled with over 1,000 Asama shrines. They offer protection against the public's destruction, but haven't been able to cleanse the forest of its private pain. Aoki Gahara is a place of great sorrow, but it's also filled with life. The urban legends describe it as a forest without birdsong, but there are birds, bears, deer, mink, foxes, mice, and numerous kinds of flora from the ground to the top of the canopy. So don't be too upset if you hear a branch crack in the woods. It might not be a Jinkiniki or an Oreo. Just make sure you leave the forest the way you found it, or you may not leave it at all. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. Don't forget to subscribe to Haunted Places on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, 
or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. We'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. Production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Lil De Ritter and Jennifer Rashi. I'm Greg Polson.